Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Autosport International, live at the NEC. Come to Autosport International as we celebrate 70 years of the Italian supercar legend, Ferrari. Get up close to an amazing array of race and road cars. Meet motorsports legends, including Red 5 himself, Nigel Mansell. And there's more, much, much more. Don't miss Autosport International, live at the NEC on the 13th and 14th of January. Book online at autosportinternational.com. Autosport Podcast. We ask whether Valtteri Bottas' Abu Dhabi victory was a consolation prize or a foundation for a 2018 title bid. So Valtteri Bottas claimed his third win of the season in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix to end the 2017 campaign on a high. The big question is, is this just a consolation prize or is it going to be the harbinger of what's to come for Valtteri Bottas and the foundation stone for a title bid next season? Other than that, wasn't a classic race, but still plenty for us to get our teeth into. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me first is Glenn Freeman, editor of Autosport.com. Now, Glenn has hauled himself off his sickbed to uh, to join this podcast, so if you hear some coughs or other associated unusual noises, it's his fault. So all unusual noises in this podcast are my fault. Officially, quite yes. quite wide-ranging. 
I will be testing your uh, sound editing skills as I did just then by creaking on the chair. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, coughing and spluttering whenever one of you two are talking. So yeah, I'll try and keep it off mic. Um, I think all that's happened is the F1 season's finished and my body's shut down. It's had enough. It's just the unrelax yeah. and all the things you've been fighting on. Exactly. Well, we'd like to say those noises you'll add will be added value. That's the that's the objective. So it's good for good for the listeners. Also joining me is Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott, we've let you take your mind off all things electric. As our Formula E correspondent, you're normally more interested in, in slower, quieter racing cars. But do you think that you're in the in the right zone for a bit of Formula One chat? Yeah, I'm going to try anyway. I'm actually just here because I've got some time to kill before I fly to Hong Kong for the opening round of the Formula E season. So I'll do my best, but I can't say I'm going to add too much more to this podcast than Glenn when he coughs and splutters. So we'll have cough and spluttering, that's old school racing, and we'll have sort of a, a gentle, dirgy buzz in the background. Yeah, it's much cleaner technology. <laughs> There we go, there we go. Very good for the carbon footprint. So, Valtteri Bottas finished the season on a high. Glenn, there's a lot of talk about momentum in sports. Is this a genuine launch pad for an improved 2018 or is it just uh, winning the last race of the season and that's all very nice but doesn't matter? I wouldn't say it doesn't matter because I think Bottas has had such a difficult second half of the season since the summer break that he did need to turn it round before the winter. And pole position in Brazil, pole and a race win in Abu Dhabi would suggest that he's got back to the level of performance he seemed to be getting out of the car prior to the summer break. So that was important. What it means for the following year, we're all kind of using the Nico Rosberg 2015 into 2016 template uh, because both he and Lewis Hamilton have talked about that run of form he had at the end of 15 and what it meant for helping him fight for the championship and win the championship in 2016. Bottas has got that opportunity in front of him. It's up to him to make something of it. And it's also up really to Lewis Hamilton to prevent history repeating itself. It's also Bottas's first win beating Hamilton in a straight fight, isn't it? So that'll be really good for, for Bottas's morale. He's He won those first two races under extreme pressure from Vettel in the Ferrari, which was you know one way to go about securing your first Grand Prix win. But then to actually beat Hamilton at a Hamilton track, because Hamilton's very good in Abu Dhabi, is, is quite a significant way for him to, as you say, sort of come back from those difficulties in the second half of the year. Well, Ben Anderson in his Grand Prix report suggested that this was Bottas's best qualifying performance in his Formula One career. So this wasn't from that perspective, just a, just a consolation prize. So I guess you can take heart from that. It goes back to what Scott said about it's a straight fight against Hamilton and that was on both days of the Grand Prix weekend that mattered. You know, In Brazil, Hamilton took himself out of the equation by crashing in Q1 and then it was really it was up to Bottas to defeat arguably slower cars, particularly in qualifying trim. Here he had to do it against Lewis on the Saturday and on the Sunday. He had the advantage of track position on the Sunday, but he earned that advantage for himself. So it's a it's a it's a very well rounded weekend, and it's quite interesting. I hadn't really thought about the fact that he hadn't beaten Hamilton in a straight fight over a weekend uh, before this race. But to have that done in your first season and to go into the winter having already done that, it's just it's one less question mark that people can throw at you over the winter and into next season. So that's a key thing for Bottas to have ticked off, actually. I think it's very easy to be a little bit trite and say one end of a season rolls into another. I think in Bottas's case, it's at least important to finish on this high, given how bad the second half of the season ultimately was compared to the first. Doesn't mean he's been terrible, but by his own lofty standards, he'll be very disappointed. In Brazil, he had the pole, but maybe a little bit reticent in the first corner. If he'd gone into the end of the season with that as the last race I think it might have been very very different it would have ended up with a bit of a a fizzle out I don't think that in the grand scheme of things winning this race suddenly means he's going to Rosberg-esque win the world championship next year but I think it probably 
eliminates quite a few of the negatives, at least, in his mind. And he means he goes into the winter on, a, on an even keel. It also means that the the scoreboard is a bit more respectable at the end of the year. I think if you'd have offered, or if you'd have suggested before the start of this season that he'd end with, what is it, four poles and, and, and three wins in his first season alongside Hamilton, when they're up against a much bigger Ferrari and Red Bull threat than they've had in recent years, you'd say that's a very, very good first season at Mercedes. But actually after how good the first half of the season was it was actually looking like he was going to to, to underachieve and he's he's brought it back quite well in the last in the last two weeks and actually made the year as a whole a bit more representative of, of how good he's been when he's been at, at his peak I think what really matters is that they found whatever was wrong between Bottas and the car after the summer break you know these last two race weekends can't just be outliers where they they sort of come away going well, that all worked all of a sudden. We don't really know why, because it can be just as much of a problem to not know why you're fast as it is to not know why you're slow in a racing car. So the big thing there, almost more so than the results, is that Mercedes are back at the factory and these improved weekends that we finish the season with for Bottas are the result of some changes or some, some work being done. And it's not just, oh, it's all come together. We'll forget about the previous six or however many races it was. Yeah, and it bodes well because earlier in the season, Bottas he had that miserable Chinese Grand Prix and he bounced back with his first pole in Bahrain. And then he kind of he had a, a race that really didn't come together on the Sunday in Bahrain. And he bounced from that with uh, the, the win in Russia. So he he's quite good at knuckling down and working out where he's going wrong and how to fix that. But as you say, it's very different to him working out what he's doing wrong and the team actually identifying any problem with the car or, you know, tiny little detail in the setup that was that was throwing him. The comparison that people make here is the Rosberg thing, isn't it? After the lacklustre 2015, strong end to the season after Hamilton clinched the championship and then he wins the 16 title. I think that's a, a bit too convenient of an analogy to make because obviously Rosberg had gone toe-to-toe already with Hamilton for the 14 title and yeah, 15 got away from him. So I don't think you can say Bottas 17 is the same as Rosberg at the end of 15. But I think it does allow him to have enough breathing space to go into next season, learn from the mistakes of this year and where he's gone wrong, taken what you talked about, Glenn, the understanding of what wasn't working in the car and apply that to next season. So I think it's it's uh, it's positive from from his perspective. I think it's a, it's a long shot to say suddenly means he's going to be beating Hamilton to the championship next year. What but- you might say, though, is that at the level he should be at after a full season, if we had a complete repeat next year of car performance between Ferrari and Mercedes and Ferrari throwing away all those points again like they did after the summer break this time. I think you'd expect Bottas to probably nip ahead of Vettel in the championship or it to have been a Mercedes 1-2. And Bottas kind of got away with that uh, this year because he was having his own struggles, but it was his first season as well. I expect that if Mercedes have the best car next year, there will be some more pressure on him to at least be second and ideally be actually mounting a, a championship charge. He's only 12 points off Sebastian Vettel in the battle for second in the World Championship. So, yeah, In the end. In the end, yes. Yeah. So certainly you'd say if you ran the season again, probably he would be ahead. And it's interesting because the whole first to second season with a the team, there is a gain to be had. Hamilton from 2013, his first season with Mercedes to 2014, made a step understanding the team better, what he needed, what he needed to do, etc. So I'd automatically expect there to be a further gain from Bottas anyway, so which is why it's nice to have this little state of equilibrium to end the season. The other thing for Bottas, of course, is that he became a Mercedes driver so late in the day exactly, yeah. in the previous winter. I think someone put it to him after the race that he's got a seven-week head start on last year, but arguably he's got a 
65 week head start or something like that because as you say that first year of learning the team is so important and it'll be interesting to see what he can make of that he said he'll be doing so much work before Christmas with the team which is something that he didn't have last year and also he'll have come off the back of a season where he's working with the team he's refining processes or or setups within the with the car and other things to, to get the most out of it and not to say that obviously Mercedes would have spent all of 2016 building a car around Hamilton that Rosberg wouldn't have been able to drive this year but Hamilton very firmly embedded within the team the team knows what he likes and and what he needs to get the most out of the car Bottas came in late didn't have that benefit either so he's just like he's he's got so much more going in his favor at the end of this season going into next than he would have done 12 months ago it's gonna be interesting to see how Bottas goes on at the start of next season it's gonna be a lot of pressure he's got to prove himself again worthy of a of a new deal so it's a nice platform but What's really going to decide how Bottas does next year is how testing goes and how the start of the season goes ultimately, isn't it? It's easy to forget that it wasn't just the end of the season that went well for Rosberg, it was the start of the next season. I think that's where the real momentum is built. Now, we should also say there are two sides to this coin. One is the Bottas side, but on the other side is Lewis Hamilton. We kept hearing this statistic that he's never won a race in a season after clinching the title. Now, we have to add the caveat to that, that there's only been a sample set of five races, three. Yeah, he did do a very good job in 2008, did he? Exactly, yeah, or indeed in 2014. But in 2015, he had three races. This year, he's had two races. And it is true he's not won any of them. And he did admit he uh, celebrated a little bit after after Mexico, job done, as it were. So, Scott, do we read anything into this or is this just the way it is? I wouldn't read too much into it beyond the fact that this is a sport defined by fine details and it's it's about building the right momentum when you get into the start of next season it'll be more it'll be more significant two races into next season if Bottas wins the first uh, the opening Grand Prix or the or, or the first two Grand Prix because then you'll have people saying oh well now it's actually five races since Hamilton won and, and that sort of thing and the the harder it gets for Hamilton and the better it gets for Bottas it just sort of creates that little change in the dynamic Bottas will get more confidence from it as well and it'll just become this cycle it's a bit tricky because obviously if you look at Rosberg winning the title in 2016 um, Hamilton not winning races at the end of 2015 didn't cause Hamilton's engine to expire in the Malaysian Grand Prix at the end of 2016 did it or did it did they press the button (laughs) so it's it's a it's a sum of many parts, isn't it? A, a title challenge. The the only thing you, you would say is uh, Bottas will have enjoyed getting one proper victory over on Hamilton at the end of this year. And then, again, if he continues that form into the start of next season, then you'll start to look at everything as a bigger picture and it, and it might come back more in Bottas's favour. I like the comparison, uh, but I don't really think there's a genuine comparison to be made. The big problem in 2015 was that Hamilton had Rosberg on the floor. He'd crushed him in 2015 and Rosberg was a broken man by the time the championship was decided and Hamilton lifted his foot off the gas so much that he allowed Rosberg to repair a lot of that damage. And I think that's what Lewis maybe regrets now. It didn't necessarily give Rosberg any kind of upper hand heading into 2016, but it repaired a lot of the damage ahead of the off-season and just went, gave Rosberg the chance to go into the winter feeling a bit better about himself and everything that he was trying to do to defeat this phenomenon that is Lewis Hamilton who was on the other side of the garage. Bottas wasn't in such a troublesome situation as Rosberg probably mentally um, coming into this weekend to get that final win. I also don't think that it will necessarily have the same maybe repairing effect that it did for Rosberg. 
Hamilton was very clear going into those final two races this year that he didn't want to repeat that. You could tell from listening to him talk about it that he knows that was a mistake. But I, again, I think it was a mistake because it got Rosberg out of the sort of mental funk that he was in at the end of that year rather than giving him any sort of real head start into 2016. Yeah, Hamilton didn't kill Rosberg off, did he? He had the chance exactly. if, he'd, if he'd seen out that 2015 season. He could have just kept hammering him in those last few races. Exactly. I can't see Hamilton making that same mistake with Bottas. It's it's interesting because there's been quite a few people, you know, Jack Villeneuve's always got an opinion, hasn't he, to spout, and uh, it's suggestion that Bottas's performance, especially in Brazil when he finished, was it a handful of seconds ahead of Hamilton, having started from pole when Hamilton was in the pit lane, that Bottas has already consigned himself to a clear number two role at Mercedes, which I think is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch to make at the end of the first season, especially when Bottas has come out at the final Grand Prix and actually gone, well, there's one more, one more race. I've beaten Hamilton in a straight fight in pole and in the Grand Prix on Sunday. Uh, it'd be pretty stupid, wouldn't it, to go into the winter and next season just assuming Bottas is going to be number two? I think the the interesting question on this is what it, it says about Hamilton. In the, I do think there's a little bit of relaxation from Hamilton in terms of the job done thing. I always remember back to 2013 when Sebastian Vettel won the championship. Nine wins on the bounce in the back end of the season. It was just that relentless, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, which really impressed me at the time because he sealed the championship with time to spare, but he was still able to, as you said, Scott, all those fine details, delve into it and do everything he needed to do to the end of the year just because he was so motivated by by just winning the races like grabbing the fastest lap at the end of the grand prix and stuff like that he was just determined to exactly exactly i don't necessarily say it says anything bad about hamilton i just think it says that it's very very difficult to sustain that level of intensity just look at nico rosberg who retired after winning the <laughs> yeah. title you know it, it takes a big toll on you and with the vettel i think, thing, I think vettel kind of is able to carry on on the crest of the wave yeah. in a way that maybe hamilton doesn't in the quite the same way that adrenaline doesn't carry him to the end of the year it's like right I've won the championship it doesn't matter if I finish fourth third second ultimate. the other thing was Lewis had to dig really deep this year and find something else within himself he, you know he came back from the summer break a different man I think inside the car and out of it and maybe that was a Rosberg-esque I've had to go so deep to find something here to give myself the edge in the championship battle you can't recreate that when really there's nothing on the line question I'd quickly ask you about the 2013 Vettel thing Edward Vettel and Red Bull's momentum have been helped by the fact that once he went on that winning run everybody else basically gave up and Ross Braun's been very vocal that Mercedes who are arguably the closest challenger over the first half of that season once they realized they couldn't keep with Vettel after the summer break they just went right put it all in the 2014 car a strategy that has paid off because they've won every championship since but maybe uh, in in these two cases Hamilton hasn't had quite the same scenario because he's had a, a teammate determined to do something about it Yep, there's certainly a little bit of that. Uh, Mercedes very, very clearly threw the focus onto, on full focus onto 14. And indeed, in the second half of the season, I remember a few people on the team being pretty happy about what they were seeing from Red Bull. So they think, well, we're, we're looking to 14. These guys aren't. So they were quite happy with that. And in fact, if you remember, back end of 13, probably the person most likely not in a Red Bull to win races was Roman Grosjean in the, in the, in the Lotus, who turned in some absolutely stunning drives in, in that period of the, of the season. So, yeah, it's not it's not directly analogous. I think the one thing I'm just thinking there is more that that Vettel could easily have just backed off a bit, and then Weber has a couple of well, wins Weber or whatever. Race, yeah. But I just no, think fair. Vettel was able to just be driven by getting victory after victory after victory, and presumably Hamilton 
deep down didn't need those two extra victories quite enough in a in a way because I think if it was well if it this was is something I meant to say actually enough. Brazil wasn't I don't think Brazil was a case of him backing off Brazil was just you know he was pushing and that's why he crashed maybe it was almost pushing too hard trying to get himself into the yeah because it was on his first Q1 lap which isn't really the place to be to be shunting when you're in the the quickest car in the field so maybe it's that thing isn't it that if you if you're conscious of the need to drive yourself a bit that's when you start sort of artificially pushing yourself and stupid things happen. I got the impression, reading some of his comments on Friday after practice, actually, that maybe subconsciously he checked out a little bit because... I think he checked out of free practice. Yeah, well, it's just he talked about, like, he kept having to sort of correct himself. He was saying, just like, oh, he's shattered at the end of the season and he's knackered and he's tired of this and tired of that. And they'd be like, oh, but I still have this really burning desire to win and I, and I want to do this. And I just sort of, I wonder if once a, once the job's done, ultimately the task at the start of the season is to win the title. Maybe it's almost a little bit of an indictment of the fact that individual Grand Prix don't really matter anymore. If if you had, if it was like, if every race was like Macau and every race was special to win, then maybe you'd have, you'd start every weekend going, I'm going to do everything I can to win this one race. But once you've actually won the title, I just think like, you don't need to take your foot off the gas. You just need to sort of remove that extra half a percent of effort and dedication it, it seemed to matter on Sunday though because you couldn't fault his effort you yep. could hear in the way he was talking on the radio when he asked the team to not talk to him as much on the radio we did have those kind of breathless radio messages again that we had earlier in the year when he was fighting Vettel he threw everything at it he didn't do the kind of oh back off and sit two seconds behind to protect the tyres and maybe we'll have a go later on he spent the whole race in every braking zone trying to do something to put Bottas off so he certainly wasn't sitting there going, you know what? I like Valtteri. We've got on well this year. He can he can have this one. Um, it's just, I think in this case, it's just circumstance meant that he's ended up with, with, he only had two races to disprove this theory that we're putting forward. Brazil was written off in Q1 and uh, there wasn't anything in the end that he could do um, this weekend. And I think ultimately, if you've already won the World Championship, it doesn't matter a great deal, does it? No. Like we say, it's it's five race sample set over two different seasons. So I think it, it's 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 an amusing little fact, and it, it's interesting to think about it. But I don't think it's it matters in the grand scheme of things. Now, what we did have in Abu Dhabi was not a great race. Lewis Hamilton said after the race, "It's a great, great track, but unfortunately, it doesn't suit the cars very well. In the last sector, you just can't follow. It's one of the worst tracks in the sense that you need 1.4 seconds advantage." to pass the car in front. Now, Glenn, is that a legitimate criticism of the track or is this just F1's problem in general and it was just one of those races that could have happened in five or six, ten other tracks? I think it's both. Um, on the track side, that final sector is a disaster. You know, the, the That many off-camber corners, the sort of speeds and the, the frequency that they're at just means you can you could see from the onboards all weekend that cars would just lose it you could, you could feel the time falling away from the following car sort of exiting every single corner Certainly that last two corners that the, the double yeah, right that's a horrendous layout and i remember when the track launched they were very proud of the off-camber corners i think they called them mistake generators or something it was some sort of stupid phrase like that but you know if anything it's uh that they're anti-overtaking generators that, that last bit of the track feels a little bit like when you're making a skeletal track and you've kind of got to get back from two-thirds around the track to the start finish you've got all these bits and left, you've got this bit and it's just a bit like that only with a hotel in the way and a marina and a few bits to, to work around well the court the right-hander where hamilton locked up and ran wide then leads into that tight left you saw it in you see it in in the f2 races uh, as well like it's it's 
it almost tempts people to sort of like chuck it down the inside into the left hander afterwards but it's just sort of not quite enough like whether it's the the tightness of the corner or there's not quite enough of a a little straight after that right hand before you get into the left and that sort of sums up Abu Dhabi as a whole for me it's kind of like it's almost there as a racetrack you've got like these two big long straights as well that go into breaking zones but they're not really the sort of breaking zones where you can do, like do much in because it's all DRS because the straight's too long and it's just kind of like it's a little bit of a mess of a circuit well those straights base and the DRS zones basically spent you spend the entire time that you're on those straights repairing the damage that you've suffered through the final sector and I was following um, the the Mercedes battle in particular on, for the Autosport live coverage and Hamilton at one point got to the end of the first back straight and he was down to half a second behind Bottas after Bottas had made his error in the turn five and six chicane and he stayed close again down the next straight. Uh, Bottas did quite a good job, actually, of getting a good exit out onto the second straight. But then what you need is a track layout uh, that allow, allows Hamilton to make something of that advantage that he's gained from Bottas's previous mistake. But all that circuit layout did was give Bottas a free pass for the error that he'd made. And that, that is, that's a track layout problem. And it has been a problem at that circuit ever since we started going there. You know, the last F1 race we had without DRS will forever be famous for Fernando Alonso losing the world championship because he couldn't get past Vitaly Petrov. And we had a race here where even with DRS, nobody could really do anything. And that brings me to the second part of your question, Ed, which is that, yeah, it is F1 pro- F1's problem because the cars have headed in this direction that we all knew the outcome of this was likely to be overtaking becoming even more difficult and the big surprise for me is actually that we didn't have more races that were this boring this year with these cars because we've given them so much more aerodynamic performance and we all know what that means that means they can't follow each other as closely yeah and i mean shorter braking zones and higher corner speeds as well so it's just it's an absolute nightmare on the on the point about the the circuit design i've been been thinking about this after after the race which is i don't understand why the circuits aren't designed for like the ultimate conclusion in mind so when it comes if it if say you've got like a last lap battle say that Hamilton Bottas fight is coming at the last lap why would you why do you have it so that the main overtaking spot is halfway around the circuit and then you've got the pointless end to the track like why would you design a final corner that you can't overtake on I don't I don't I don't understand that maybe I'm missing something really obvious well I think I think when it comes to Abu Dhabi there are certain limitations and should we say that I'm not convinced that the racing side of things was right at the top of the priority list for for that particular for that particular spot but but it's interesting isn't it because there's always there's always different arguments for what makes good racing because there was a period if you go about 15 years let's say everyone said oh what you need is a fast last corner into a slow corner at the end of the main straight but then of course you lose 20 to 30% of downforce in a fast corner so you can't you can't follow this closely like, so you, you get all of these different things so sometimes you talk about having these wide these wide corners wide slow corners where there's a few different lines that you can take without losing. Basically, everything, huge every circuit needs to be spa, where you have like this massive long run up to the final corner, and then it's a heavy braking zone. Well, I do think actually scale of circuits in some ways is actually a problem in terms of you need mammoth straights because Formula One cars they're very quick in a straight line, they're very quick at getting up to the speed, so straights are shorter. If you see what I mean, a Formula One car of today compared to one of forty years ago on the same track configuration, the straights are effectively shorter and the braking distances are, are shorter as well. The other thing I think to, it, that is worth mentioning is harness to that fact of it being very, very hard to 
follow closely and track configuration. We also had a, a field that was roughly arranged in the right order from qualifying. There was no one massively out of position against their pace. Only one grid penalty for Brendan Hartley, who was in the second slowest car anyway. So we didn't have much out of position. There's no reason for Sebastian Vettel in the second fastest car to be overtaking anyone because he was the second fastest car in third place. Are you about to make an impassioned plea for reverse grids? Well, I mean, it, what it does do is tell you the fact that if if you want overtaking to happen you need quicker cars behind slower cars basically and while it's completely valid to talk about the the delta you need in performance to get past and how difficult it is that's an important thing to tackle there is also the fact that that variables are what cause overtaking and with cars operating at a, in a similar sort of relative performance band throughout a race you won't you won't get that much much overtaking but uh, that's <laughs> that's a, a bigger topic but the one area that was of, of interest in terms of deciding something in the race was this battle for six in the constructors with Renault. Now, Scott, it's reckoned to be worth 5.5 to $6.5 million, depending on what the overall revenue for the year is and in, in terms of the share that the sixth-place team will get. How excited are you by Renault clinching sixth place and that extra pot of gold? I'm trying to think of a polite way of expressing my disinterest in it. Your tone of voice has done that. <laughs> do you mean do you mean disinterest or lack of interest? Same thing. Disinterested or uninterested? Very different things. Oh, are they? Uh, let's not Disin- get disinterested, impartial, uninterested, actively not interested. No, interesting. Uh... <laughs> ah, interesting. There we go. You see, uh, I don't care. I made it interesting. No, on on the constructors thing, I don't care. I mean, you're, you're looking at a works team that's beaten a uh, a junior team of another team that also happens to be that works team's engine customer and also Haas which doesn't appear to understand how to build a, a Formula 1 car that works on several different types of circuits and tends to get lost throughout the season I, I, I'm if it had been something a bit more significant then then maybe I'd care a little bit more but I just can't see how a works team that has enough money to fund a race team and an engine program like why should I care that they're going to get an extra five million or something at the end of the season? Yeah, there's nothing that interesting about sixth place in the constructors championship. F one has actually made constructors finishing position even less visible to the fans ever since we got rid of uh, car numbers being based on where you finished the following season at the previous season. Sorry. I've uh, always liked that rule. Yeah, I, 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 I like that, that as well. Like, I feel yeah. like you earn a number and then you carry it into the yeah, next season. Yeah, that's fine with me. The problem actually beforehand was that the numbers just became too small and, and weren't visible. It didn't really matter to me that a driver had to keep the same number all the time. Um, but here we go. You asked us a question about finishing sixth in the Constructors' Championship and we're already talking about driver numbers because we're trying to find a way of making it sound interesting. And you started that by saying that was the point of interest in the race yeah. as well. And then you remember who finished sixth last year off the top of your heads? Uh, ha, brilliant! Should do. Uh, no, but this shows how this shows how Did relevant you? it is. My, my my point is proven, and probably Mc- McLaren, no, McLaren got it in the end, didn't they? I don't know. Hey, that's, how, that's how little it, it matters. It just doesn't like, matter. It, like I say, it, the constructors have become even less relevant to yeah. the outside world. I think James Allison put it really well when Mercedes sealed the constructors' championship early this year, and he admitted on TV. He said, "This." is a championship that's for us it's for the people in the teams it's not about the fans we know that what the fans are here for is the drivers championship which obviously wasn't sealed at the time so then all the focus remained on Hamilton's bid to win a Mercedes another drivers title and I'm okay with that actually let's have the constructors championship decides the prize money and all these other things but it doesn't really have to matter to the fans and what I think is most interesting about 
actually the way Renault ended the season is that I think they're going to be a much stronger force next season, uh, as as are probably McLaren. So we we should have some midfield teams taking a step forward, and that's that's more interesting than actually you know who finished where in the in the championship this season. Yeah, ultimately it's a very it's a minor placing really, isn't it? There's, there's ten teams, six isn't exactly much to write home about. We did also have the slight controversy. Controversy is probably overstating it, but with Hulkenberg cutting the track in his battle with Perez, getting the five second penalty, but still still beating them. Hulkenberg was irritated about being given the penalty. Force India moaned about it not being the correct penalty. How do you unravel this controversy, Glenn? Hulkenberg had a point in that he had nowhere to go. You watch his onboards. Perez, I think, even had a wheel or two off the track on the outside. But Hulkenberg also didn't have the world's biggest overlap, did he? No, but I believe that him cutting the track was fine, but then he should have been ordered to give yep. the place back straight away. Or done problem himself. Solved. Yes. Uh, but in the end, he's... His decision to not give the place back has been backed up by the stewards who have given him another penalty that he was able to, he was quick enough to Overcome, negate. Yeah. Um, and I think we had, was it in Monaco where Button got stuck behind one of the Saubers who got one of those five second penalties for something? Yeah. It, it ruined Button's race. Uh, and, and I remember thinking then, this five second penalty is rubbish. And it's been proven again here. It's a, it's a stupid penalty. I think it's a cop out from the stewards as well. And really, it was it was a clear decision. You know, make him make him give the place back. Then he's got to race his way back past him. And any any impact on the race by him taking that shortcut is removed. But instead, we've now said to the drivers on the first lap, if you think you're quicker than a guy, cut the track and get five seconds up the road. Mm. No, that's very true. In fairness to the stewards, they can't officially issue a penalty of let the guy back past. Unfortunately, it's down to the teams and drivers they need to, to change be the rules. Then, don't they? Yeah, the, the the mildest penalty they can issue is a five second, five second penalty. So there's a little bit of a systemic issue there. But I think probably Renault and Hulkenberg should have been a bit sharper to that. But like you say, they they made you, it. You can't criticise Renault and Hulkenberg no, because they obviously held out, thinking, well, there's a chance here that if the stewards are light on us, we can get up the road. Yeah, the one clear. thing you could say is that it's up to Force India in that situation to keep one of their cars within five seconds of him, and they weren't quick enough to do that. Um, but as as Force India said, this is a track position race where overtaking is difficult. So they knew that if they could stay ahead, there was a chance they could continue to compromise Renault's race and basically win what we've been calling Class B this season. We've talked a lot about what was happening on track, but we did see at the end of the race, after the end of the race, the unveiling of the new F1 logo. Now, Glenn, apparently the old logo was much loved. I didn't realise quite how much love there was for it until people realised it, it would be changed. There's been all sorts of social media outrage, fury campaigns. I think we did a, a post uh, asking people to give their thumbs up or thumbs down to, uh, to, to the logo, and it's something like 96% giving it all the thumbs down. So are you as angry as everyone else? No. Uh, I, when I heard there was a new logo coming, uh, I did expect to have quite a strong opinion on it because, yeah, I was one of the people who actually I did quite like the previous logo. I even liked the logo that came before that, um, which used to flash up on the screen before Murray Walker would talk you through the grid. But then this quite bland red and white logo appeared. But I actually thought, I don't care. It's it's not particularly relevant. There are far more important things that I want to see F1's new owners fix. And I will judge the success of whatever they do next year based on how entertained I am by what's going on on track and how close all the teams are, how competitive F1 is and how much of a sporting spectacle it is. If they want to change the logo, that's up to them. I can see why it's such a drastic change because that was one of the things people seem to have a problem with was why didn't you just tweak the logo like some other companies have done? 
I know they gave F1 gave the example of Starbucks and Coca-Cola. I drew the comparison with WWE, who updated their logo just before they launched an online streaming service, which we know is coming for F1. They were all small tweaks. F1 wanted to make a big statement here because this is, what, the final nail possibly in the Bernie Eccleston coffin? Uh, it's debatable whether Bernie's inside that coffin, of course. But they wanted it to be very different. I can see why. And, yeah, it, it didn't bother me. I don't know if it's the same for, for you two as it was for me. The The only thing I enjoyed about the previous logo was the time I noticed where the one is. Like, that, it feels like a little, it's like a, oh, didn't notice that. It took me years to work yeah, exactly. that out. My so, dad pointed it yeah, out to I me. And even then, I still it. couldn't see it. Exactly. So, same here. But... That to me, and that's been something that has been flagged up to me and on the Autosport notifications feed on Twitter, that a lot of people have used as an example of what why they don't like it because it was like, oh, you know, it bonded the F1 fans together as a group. And that to me is a great example of what's wrong with Formula 1, which, which is just, it, it was an in-joke. So what they're annoyed about is that someone's taken their in-joke away. But that's, to me, not what a logo or a brand is supposed to achieve. It's supposed to be an external thing that boosts the profile of the thing. And if, if you don't know that that's the logo or what the logo is meant to be, then what's the point of it? I've worked with quite a few designers and there are certain designers who sometimes the cleverness of what they're creating gets away from what they're trying to achieve with it. In fact, I think Chase Carey talked about negative space being one of the problems in that the one is formed from negative space. I think it means the, the gap, although you could also say the right-hand side also forms a, a second one if you want to look at it that way. That's how I originally saw it. The reason they've changed the logo is that it's not just a bit of uh, a bit of staking their territory, but it's also because there was a feeling the logo wasn't really working. I'm, I don't know what the level of recognition was around the world. I don't think it was an iconic sports championship logo. There are some good ones out there. I think the format wasn't particularly adaptable it didn't work for lots of different shapes and that's why the, the new logo is a lot shallower. it seemed to highlight the kind of jagged edges down one side as being problematic for various yeah. reasons but and if that's the case then so be it i'm no sports marketer i'm no expert in this but it strikes me that when liberty media bought it everyone's like oh this american sports media promotions company they'll know everything yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant what do what do they do branding is a big part of that so let's not everyone get excited about how brilliant they're going to be for formula one and then when they change something that's very, very obvious, they're, they're likely to change, get irritated about it. Well, it's been a bad couple of weeks on that front, though, hasn't it? Because you've got some negative reaction to the logo. You've got the, the prize money pot going down, which has meant all the teams are slagging them off. The manufacturers are on their back because they don't like the new engine rules. It's, the, the grace period is clearly over, isn't it? The it's ex- got real for them. Yeah, the excitement of, oh, Bernie's gone. This is great. We've got these new guys coming in. And now it's like, oh, we don't like what they're doing. Get rid of them. The, the, the bit that I didn't, sort of mean to sort of instigate when I expressed my opinion of the reaction to the logo on Twitter was a lot of people coming at me and saying um, well we're allowed we're allowed to be annoyed at this and other stuff we're capable of doing that and I was like that's never really been my point I'm sure many people are capable of being angry about several things at once I know I am but like just spend your energy on things that matter Glenn you mentioned there like the other things that Liberty's come under pressure for in the last couple of weeks engines and costs and uh, engines and, and budgets or whatever you want to call it revenue distribution whatever those are the things that matter and the way I see it when because I do believe that that social media and internet forums and whatever it's going to be is a has the potential to to facilitate a genuine conversation and actually put give the people hashtag who, join the conversation hashtag join the conversation people that don't 
actually have uh, a particularly loud voice that's paid attention to, it affords them the chance to sort of register their opinions. If you just moan about absolutely everything and you just uh, it, it just saturates that sort of audience with negativity over every small thing, people are going to stop caring and they're going to stop actually attaching any significance to the points that they're making. I've just thought about it and I think it's probably quite a wise move to unleash it at the end of a season because people have the winter to get over it and I don't think it'll be a talking point by the time we get to Australia. Whereas if they if they launched it in the Australian Grand Prix week, then people will be angry about it for the first few weeks of the season and you can end up with quite a negative atmosphere around F1 and its fan base. But yeah, no one will be no one will even remember the old logo by the time we get a few months down the line everyone's in Melbourne and they've got other stuff planned as well haven't they for like the TV coverage and stuff so by the time the season starts everyone's going to be like oh this is really cool and look at all the good stuff they've done and then all the bad stuff's going to be buried in the past I'm already looking forward to when they change the new logo to a new new one and there's social media outrage because of how much they like this uh, this well, newly the, revealed the, bit that the reaction that I've also really enjoyed is, enjoyed is Lewis Hamilton declaring that he doesn't find the new logo iconic but, but of course not. It, it was launched 24 hours ago. It's not been given the time to become iconic. It's such, such, yeah, a, I, such an odd reaction. Give it a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, to be honest, I look at the logo and it doesn't doesn't blow me away, but it's been created for a reason. Let's see how it works in terms of giving uh, F1 a global identity and all that other marketing buzz of phrases that you'll have to uh, have to apply to it. Well, given this wasn't the most engaging race of the year, which was probably summed up by the fact we've talked about the logo so much, now's probably the time to wrap things up. So thanks very much for joining me, Glenn Freeman and Scott Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe via your podcast supplier of choice to search for Autosport. And remember to check out autosport.com for all the latest from the Abu Dhabi Pirelli tyre test, which Robert Kubica will be starring in, as well as news from the wider world of motorsport. Also give some thought to trying our plus subscriber area, offers in-depth features, columns, interviews, and also pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out every Thursday. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.